You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Max Measure Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. I have been on the road. I am back in the office, and I am working. And uh, I had a consulting visit today, and it was quite interesting. Different ecoregion, different complexities, different you know culture. A lot of the things that I'm dealing with, you know, I have standard kind of practices. But what I recognize is when you're working in different ecoregions, you kind of set into the tone of how people think and work, and you've got to work off their infrastructure. One of the things I kind of paid attention to with this last client is thinking about, you know, not just the lowest hole in the bucket, the changes he can make, but what opportunities do we have to work with a forester or any type of land management company in his particular region that would help him kind of reduce the volume of work. A lot of times we get into these big projects and, you know, I'd say the same on my own property, but I don't, I don't have the tools, right? I don't have the skitter. I don't have the dozer. If you don't have the equipment, you're going to have to leverage other resources. And it's thinking more about your infrastructure, your local economy and what you can leverage. And it's thinking more in depthly about, you know, what your resources are financially, you know, how can you pay for these? What offices do you have? So one thing I would say is before you get into your projects and you've got time, hunting season's around the corner for some of us, but you've got time to you know, make some improvements, fast improvements. Um, I'm saving a couple weekends here coming up where I'm going to cut some timber on my own property, continue to do my layout, strategize for hunting season. I suggest you do the same. And uh, we're going to talk. I have a, a guest back on here, Mark Haslam. He's back from the Southeast Whitetail. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about his ecoregion, what he's working on, what his clients have been working on, et cetera. So I'm interested and happy to have him back on the line. Hey, Mark, how you doing? Good, John. Doing well. Good. How are you? Good. I'm. Uh, it's a great day today in uh, upstate New York, so I'm, I'm pretty happy. Um, we just had a good little rainstorm come through. It had been dry. It's going to be dry here for the next week or so. So my food plots kind of needed that, and I think a lot of people are, are worried about drought at least this time of year, which is strange because in years past, that hasn't been something I've paid too much attention to. We usually have had adequate rain, but we're getting these bouts of a week, week and a half, no rain. And, you know, in our areas, things dry out pretty quick. That, that may not be the same in your area, but, you know, just something that we're not used to. Yeah, we, we've actually had a lot of rain uh, the past probably month across the southeast. And there's a lot of rain uh, in our area um, this weekend for Memorial Day, which is unfortunate, but it's 
it's fortunate for the people that have seed in the ground. Yeah, I was actually down, I was in North Carolina, and uh, I wasn't consulting. I was down there for a wedding, at a buddy's wedding, and uh, I was, you know, I was just impressed with the, the amount of moisture that they were dealing with down there. And it seemed like every other day, you know, they had a chance of rain. We just don't have the same situation here in the, in the Northeast. So, you know, I wanted to get into, and it's been a bit since you've been online with me and we, we've chatted. I want to kind of get into, you know, this, you put a lot of content out there related to burning habitat management, you know, how you're managing your own property as well as your clients. And I'm kind of interested in what you've experienced, at least post fire. You've done a lot of, I've seen a lot of fire posting online where you've done a lot of burning layout. I know it's a big part of your regime. I kind of want to know, you know, how many acres this year did you burn on your own personal property? And then vice that, like, what did you experience as a result of that? What changes how are the deer utilizing those areas, et cetera? So if you could dig into that, I'd, I'd appreciate it. Sure. Yeah, we, um, at my farm, we probably burned somewhere between like 150 and 200 acres this year. Um, and that number fluctuates every year. And it, it's, it's really a product. I mean, mostly it's a, it's a product of our time, but it, it, it really comes down to rainfall. Exactly what you said a minute ago is that a lot of times, like we get so much rain and our ground so saturated in January, February, that a lot of where we want to burn doesn't dry out enough to actually get a good fire rolling through until March or April. Um, but we, we burned a good bit uh, starting mid late March and going through pretty much the entire month of April. Interesting. Yeah. And I think having that interval and did you experience any differences with burning later or earlier in those regions? Have you had like side-by-side comparisons to say, okay, uh, burning a little bit earlier, a little bit later, there's a difference, at least from, uh, you know, timing, the related vegetation, obviously delay, obviously you're not going to have as much vegetation. And are you doing that purposely in some capacity, at least for maybe turkeys or deer for that matter? Yeah. I mean, you know, I would like to time my, time my burns in a perfect world. I could have them all laid out, you know, but we're so dependent on our own schedule or equipment breaking down when you're there to actually do it. Or, you know, we've got to, you know, be under the right conditions to actually light a match uh, on the ground. Um, and then rainfall too. But um, go back to your question about burning timing of burning and what you can create yes i mean you if you burn in the in the dormant season you're going to get a lot more early successional growth um and then you know later you burn spring you might get a little more um maybe grasses coming in and then late summer early fall is when you can really produce a lot of forbs so um there is a lot of there's a lot of different timelines there but but you know a lot of it depends on your particular native seed bank in on your property so i mean you know if you were to line the match um and burn let's just pick any state in the southeast you know georgia south carolina florida alabama north carolina whatever it is and if you were to pick you know let's say 10 different tracts of land across the entire state and you burn the same days, you're not going to get the same results. You're not going to get the same plants growing at all 10 of those tracks. If you burn the same quantity, let's just assume it was the same day and you had had the same post rainfall and you had the same basal area, you're going to get different native, you know, seeds germinating. So for instance, I put up one video maybe a week or two ago where I got a ton of muscadine vine growing from a burn two years ago, a ton of it, and a lot of blackberries. Well, in that particular piece of the farm, that's what what I'm generating. But you know, we burned that same time frame another place, and we might you know, we might generate more ragweed, for instance. So it's I I think sometimes that people do get caught up in like. You know, if you burn in the dormant season, you're going to get this. Burn in late spring, late spring, you're going to get this. And it's like, well, 
you know, you definitely can, but the specific plants are going to come up. That's something like what, you know, I hear you talk about too, is just, you know, paying attention, watching what comes up. If you don't know the plants, ID them. There's some great uh, plant identification apps. ID them, watch them, figure out if the wildlife utilize them. And if they do, you know, if they do eat it, then actually watch that those areas to see if they really are uh, browsing on them or waiting for the berries to develop or, you know, just paying attention to how the wildlife utilize those areas. Yeah, I love everything you said there, and I love how you broke it down into – Yes, this, but that. And then in these instances, it's a watch and see kind of thing because I don't prescribe to we have a full understanding of the outcome of anything we're doing at any point. (laughs) You know, and I'm not saying we're tripping through this process. I mean, it's a tool. You're utilizing it. It it allows you to take a large amount of space and manage it. And at the same point, the outcome, although some may be known based on past experiences, it's still a question mark. And I, I kind of like that. Now you, you mentioned burning during the growing season and, you know, midsummer, is that even feasible other than using herbicide burn downs? And then, you know, <laughs> then is that even possible in your area? It, that depends on who you ask. So, you know, <laughs> just in general, who you, who you ask about burning, um, burning the land, just in general, not even a time frame. A lot. I mean, a lot of people say it's just not really feasible because there's, you know, there's a, there's been a definitely been, been a big pushback in wildlife fires and misunderstandings. So a lot of people aren't really for fire anyways. But the people that do control burns, prescribe fire, all that, um, typically they're doing it dormant season all the way up until like early summer. And there's a very few amount of people that even want to attempt it or like doing it late summer, early fall. fall. So, yes, you you will produce um, a different type of species plant, more forbs, and you can get rid of a lot of the grasses. So a lot of the grasses you're going to you're going to produce with with, you know, with a dormant season and, and spring burns early fall. I, you know, we it's those are extremely tricky and it's mostly the heat. I mean, yeah. some of these, some of these fires, as you can imagine, if someone hasn't done one, even in, even if it's like 70 degrees, those fires can get very hot. It just depends on, you know, is it a back burn? Are you just running it through fast or really the fuel? You know, if it's just pine straw, it's going to burn, burn nice and slow, not that hot. But if you have a lot of debris or if you have a lot of years built up of fuel, compounding with sticks and vines and stuff that can get pretty hot. Um, I am hoping that we are going to do a burn this early August at the deer steward two course. This is going to be at our farm there. Um, I think Craig Harper typically likes to burn a section. So that's the plan right now. Hopefully we'll have some good weather conditions. I think that's great. You guys are having the steward course on your property. And I did see that. I, I think this whole, you know, concept of warm season burning is something that is completely overlooked. But to that point that you just made, it, it is difficult to do. It's It could be hard to manage. And the outcome is yeah. to the benefit of the deer herd, but there is obviously complications with that. And I, I think that's important that you describe that because very rarely do you even hear anybody talk about that as a, a method. And there, there's a little bit of a madness to that as well. So, you know, it's just thinking through that, like in the Northeast specifically, you know, my experience and, and uh, not in New York specifically, but it's one of the best times, at least the mo- most opportune times, assuming you've had long periods of drought. That brings in a totally different perspective from those that at least are considering that. And then obviously the concern, at least with setting forest fires, et cetera, there, there's a lot of you know, concern across the board, but, but that's the way that the landscapes were managed, managed years ago, um, years and years ago. And that's why we have all these watchtowers, fire watchtowers in these areas uh, because of the concern in, in that light. But that's, that's why nature did what it did because it was the time to reset and um, the wildlife would benefit in that capacity in, in great abundance. So, you know, it was the timing of that would lead, you know, these, these, 
maybe smaller populations into a healthier, you know, let's say fall and the outcome was great come spring. So it's kind of funny thinking about that in reverse where that was, you know, not, not dominating, but it happened in a frequency and occurrence, which is far greater than today. And I think a lot of people kind of miss out on that. So I would say for those of you that are considering this, you know, this method, you know, that the Mark's bringing up, you know, you know, think through it and think through the benefits and, and you can experiment small scale. So it doesn't become a danger. You know, you don't have to let off a hundred acres. It could be, you know, a half an acre, something of that size. So, you know, maybe, maybe scale it. So you, you feel that you know, the safety factors in play and uh, allows you to see just, just what it ends up kind of propagating on the landscape. So great, great point. The other thing I see you on uh, Instagram on is you're running your no-till drill all over the place. So you must have been planting a lot of crops recently, and I kind of want to hear more about that. What's been going on there? I, yeah, I, if I can, if I can mention one more thing about fire, sure. It, it was actually, it was actually a question I think you asked earlier about like uh, going back to timing the fire and then and then how it can wildlife can benefit. So let's just take whitetails for instance. Um, just, just real quickly, you know, deer, when they're browsing out in the, out in the woods on that, on that early successional growth, it's, they're, you know, when they eat blackberries, for instance, they're snipping off that young tender growth that's coming up the top. So if you were to burn the same time every year, let's say January, February, come summertime, uh, you know, those plants are up and there might not be browsing on them anymore. And so I, I had a conversation with Dr. Marcus Lashley from University of Florida. Yep. And, and he, he was saying just, the, I mean, like our stress period is the summertime. And so if you burn January, February, there, a lot of those benefits from the fire goes away by the summertime. And that's why, like what you said to your point about how this was nature's way of kind of routine fires throughout the year and that's why fires through the summer and early fall are great because you know we think about antler growth and every hunter knows when that is and we think oh we, we got to do all this stuff for antler growth which is true i'm not knocking i'm not but that's one piece of the puzzle but you also have ending of gestation period right now and you and then you go right into lactation so like right now you got to stress the summer the heat and those does need that nutrition to produce the best quality milk and you know a lot of summertime crops like farming like commercial crops might not be up and they might not be up you know right now when the farms are hitting the ground so and then you roll right into early fall you've got the rut you've got does breeding being chased and also run also and also raising a family so there's just I just want to add that one piece to it that to your point, yes, I mean, the, these deer need, need nutrition, and that's, you know, it, it's very similar to why people have um, perennial and annual food plots. So you kind of have that seamless, or you're hoping for a seamless transition of food plots for, for wildlife. And, and I, think, I think that last point, at least the food plot piece of it is huge because, <clears throat> you know, I can just, I'm sure the client's going to listen to this today. The one client that I had the meeting with today, you know, we were kind of describing this layout and I said, you have to have, you know, that staple standard food source in that food plot specific for interest. But beyond that, you're talking about the nutritional benefit. Now I'm in complete agreement with you. So my question now back is thinking through this, you know, we talk about intervals of burning and the sequencing of that and the, the variance that we're going to experience. One of the things that I go in and, uh, I, I caught recently with another consultant and we were kind of strategizing how we manage you know, woodlots and thinking about deer's microbiome and why they consume this plant versus that and thinking just about the benefit. And you talked about timing with, you know, the blackberry and how important, you know, that is thinking about the shoots and when they consume that. And then when it gets to a point where it's not edible and then you, you can recreate that circumstance. Like one of the things I, 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 again, I think people don't pay attention to this is, you know, when you're cutting off grasses, like oats is a good example. You can reset the oats and then it'll continue to grow. You can mow it like your grass. Um, it's got a, you know, basically survival period. At some point it'll end up uh, seeding out or it'll get exhausted from continuing mowing. But obviously at some point in each individual plant, it's going to have a preference point. And I think you brought up this point of dialing in to the preference point of that individualistic plant 
and kind of diagnosing it when that is. There's also the alternative to thinking about how to artificially recreate that. And mowing is one of those examples. Do not put away your mowers. I love flail mowers. I think that's a good thing. And you could be resetting bushes, you know, grasses, like I just suggested, or other plant life, you know, shrubbery, etc. So it's thinking about how to recreate that. The one thing I want to add, I'm going on a rant, but I want to add is thinking about the nutrient levels, macro and micros of your landscape. And again, those are the food sources that create more bountifulness or plentifulness of those shrubbery, you know, those shrubs, et cetera, those plants. Like a lot of our, uh, I think I've said this before, at least in a prior podcast, I'm looking at two levels, sodium and phosphorus. And there's no reason you can't take, you know, those measurements from whatever your you know local lab is, or I use Logan Labs or whatever your soil, you know, your, your, your testing laboratory is, ward, whatever, looking at different areas of your landscape to look at these deficiencies and applying broad spectrum foliars or burning or doing something to just, you know, disrupt those environments, but trying to think about the replenishfulness of, you know, what you can do in the landscape. And there's, there's a bio inoculants or I'm using foliars at this point and that you can apply directly to those particular plants to replenish those nutrients to make them more palatable for the deer. So if you don't want to burn, there's another option for you and thinking more, I mean, holistically, but to Mark's point, I mean, I think these staple food plots is a big deal. So sorry, Mark, I was just thinking about a bunch of things that are on my mind today. Um, (laughs) But I, I got a question for you. So when you go into the, you know, this is my inexperience with the South. So when you go into the kind of those early spring periods, your green ups way earlier and you're, you're, you know, we're planting winter hardy plants that are going to basically either biannuals, what have you, they come back in the spring months. What are you trying to focus in on for your deer herd? That's like inexpensive, a staple, maybe it's got a perennial aspect to it. Like, what are you, what are you kind of pulling into your perennial food plot into that season? Uh, that early season for for this you know gestation period that we kind of identified and then obviously you know we've got the lactation what what are your like staple food plot options for for you we do a lot of um we'll do winter wheat okay. and we actually do a lot of naked oats um na- naked oats are, are are you you can get those very cheap i mean as low as uh, you know five nine dollars a bushel and, um, you know, if you want to, you can even harvest the seed and, you know, for, for next year, but those are really pretty, pretty inexpensive. And we might do, might mix in like, uh, like radish, turnips, rape, something like that. Um, but you know, the problem with those food plots, one naked oats are phenomenal for quail and turkeys, but at some point you're going to be, ha- you're going to have your warm season crops going in the ground. So you're going to have to kill them, you know, spray them, and then you know prep for your your warm season. Um, unless you just want to let it ride out, but we typically will just rotate cool and warm season food plots, and we do have some clover in the ground, um, but we do go heavy on our warm season and cool season. So right now, like you said, yeah, we I've been getting a lot of uh, warm season annuals um, in the ground. It's funny you bring up the term naked oats. We we don't. I'm not familiar with naked oats. I'm assuming that's um, a variety that may maybe hollis or I, I I don't even know what naked oats actually is. Can you explain a little bit about that variety? Is it is it a, a bread variety that's slightly different? The, yeah, they they will deer will eat the um, the early growth, the sprout, the shoot coming up. They'll eat that. They'll. They'll browse on that for 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 a couple months. So we usually get that in the ground sometime in anywhere from October to early December. December is kind of getting a little late, um, and they'll and they'll feed on that through the end of the deer season, um, going into January. And at some point, um, when we start to get a little sunshine and things are growing well in the spring, they get a lot taller. They start to seed out in deer. By the time the seeds are being in, in production, they're not they're not eating on it. But then it rotates into a, a lot more birds. Um, and at that point, the oats will have some height to them, and we get a lot of insects in the fields. So the insects are great for turkeys, quail, and then of course you've got the seed head. But yeah, it's a very 
inexpensive way of getting some type of um, cover crop cover crop on the ground. A lot of farmers they don't really mind it. It doesn't really do a whole lot to the soil. Um, so we'll even go in on top of the um, our leased ag fields to farmers and just drill it in or just topsoil it because it's so pretty in, pretty inexpensive. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I appreciate that. And it's certain, certain we don't use here in the north, so um, that's, that's new to me. Okay, so I want to go to the next phase of this. So you're putting in all your, I guess, warm season, and then we're starting to think about kind of this June period coming up, right? We're, we're nearing June. What are you doing on your personal property to prepare for season? Because, you know, September isn't that far away. And, you know, in preparation for hunting season, what's on your docket? And also, I want you to, for clients and et cetera, think about, you know, what others should be doing or preparing for. So what are you doing and what should people be doing on the landscape in the South coming up? So right now what I'm doing on my farm is I'm trying to get all my seed in the ground. Um, we've had a ton of rain, like I mentioned earlier, which has been great in one way, but I've got some fields that um, I got rained out last week. And there was mm. just, I mean, I, I started playing soybeans last week and all of a sudden I was producing wake uh, in my, my tractor. There was just so much standing. It was just way too much water. And a lot of those fields are uh, a little bit lower which is great soil, but the ground's too wet. And, and so there is something, the ground can be too wet. Hopefully we won't be in a situation where sometimes you get a ton of rain, saturated dirt, and then it dries up and it doesn't keep raining and it dries up and it's just rock hard. And you can't go into playing after that. Um, but so we're, we're getting all our seed in the ground, which, you know, some people will plant food plots um, early fall, which you can do. But, but you know, what you have to understand is that if it's a warm season annual and you plant in early fall, a lot of people do it with, you know, when they have later uh, deer seasons. Like, for instance, Georgia, their rifle season doesn't open until like the second or third week in October. So they might start planting some warm season annuals early fall, but those plants are going to have a very short lifespan because they're going to die at the first frost, which is usually around our area uh, the first week in November. Hmm. So that's not a very long window. So that kind of was, it's fine. People do that, but you know, those are, you might, those might be more of kill plots or hunting plots to where, deer are eating them and you're tracking them in so you can try to hunt them, but they're not really getting, they're, they're not getting the, all the bang for the buck. Like if you're planting soybeans, for instance, or something with high protein. And that's why if you are trying to do that, that kind of program, it's good to do it early on when you can do it in the spring. That way the wildlife are consuming that protein and that nutrition for the longest period of time that they can. And then it's, as far as what else we're doing, I mean, right now, like I, we were talking about before we started recording that it's almost June. And so for me, like June isn't, it isn't, it's not, you know, the 11th hour, but come June, someone should really have a plans for that upcoming season, meaning uh, deer stands. Do they need to move any? Do, do they need to shift any permanent stands around? Because over time you do need to. Because deer will catch on. Do you need to, you know, create trails or, you know, anything like that? Major trimming. Start to plan that out so that it's not last minute. So that you can get that done with your time frame on your own time and not be rushed. And then you can have a little window kind of cushion from when you're stopping most of the work and then you're starting the actual hunting season. One thing I, I, I've been stressing to people um, is very simple. People can do um, well. It's simple if you have access to a harrow, a disc harrow, and you can get them. You know, obviously for a tractor, but 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 you can even get them for the back of a pickup truck or a ATV four wheeler. Even if you're not going to burn, fire brakes are so incredible to have. One is to protect your investment. 
you know, over the summer, places get dry, cigarette butts. There's a lot of, you know, uh, errant fires that can happen, um, you know, coming from roads. So it's always good to have a fire break for protection for your investment. But also, I love fire. I love fire breaks everywhere because that, that, that's like one of my best scouting methods, like turkey season, deer season. You, you know, if you maintain the fire breaks, they're going to be heavy on dirt. Now, it, depending on where, when you disc, you might even get a lot of early successional growth um, if you disc in the, in, the, in, the, in the dormant season. But the scouting, the real-time scouting you can get from tracks, to me, is just priceless. Hmm. So Love that. Um, I love that, man. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and I know, like, you know, like, you might have a ton of rain, and, and then you can't see the tracks. Well, guess what? You know, you know when the rain is, you show up, and then you know – you can really pinpoint when those tracks, like how fresh they are sometimes based on rain. Um, and there's so many different, I mean, they can, you can start to learn tire, you know, tire tracks, learn, you know, your hunting buddies or your forester. That way if you, you know, have a poacher on the property, there's just a lot of things you can see with keeping. I, I, now I, I do not suggest all your roads. You, you don't want to disc up all your roads so that you, so they, you know, don't become bogs when it rains. But just, you know, you can disc alongside a road. Just take one side or both sides. And I also love to, to disc and create those, those dirt fire breaks going in the stands so that you can slip into them so you're not stepping on pine straw and sticks and, and you know, dry leaves, you know. But it's, you got dirt. I mean, that's about as quiet as you can get. Yeah, I, I like that idea. I like it for a lot of reasons. And obviously that's helping you out come burn season as well, you know, for the, the following fall or, you know, whenever you're deciding to do any work. And let, let me ask you this question. And, um, you know, I think looking broad scale, and I think a lot of people want to know, that. I, I know we, we're, we're talking a big property, right? This is a large property we've already talked about in the past. If you haven't listened to those podcasts, please listen to Mark and I on those how much percentage of food plots are you planning uh, across your landscape? And then I want to know that like the acreage approximately. So how much is your large acreage planted just for dedicated food plots on your property? Um, we're probably planning, it's probably close to 50 acres roughly. Okay. Yeah. And it can, um, and it varies, um, but that's usually what we're planning like in the spring and summer for instance, but some of our smaller food plots, which a lot of those smaller ones are like a quarter acre, half acre. A lot of those were old, like former loading decks where past, you know, timber sites, they cut them out to load the trucks up, you know, drag the trees, load them up. Well, we've, you know, uh, clean them up and turn them into like small little fields. Well, some of those fields, if they're that small, um, I don't plant, um, in warm season, you know, soybeans or sun hemp or whatever it is, because the deer just wipe them out. If, if sometimes if you like, if someone's listening and if they're in a high density area, they have a lot of deer and they plant soybeans on a quarter acre food plot. They're going to be probably wiped out to where they're never even going to produce bean pods because they're going to be snipped off early on and kill the plant. So, you know, a lot of my food plot strategies goes into the neighborhood, so to speak, meaning what are the farmers planting? Um, because when they go heavy on cotton, for instance, I notice a big difference in how much pressure they put on, on my food plots. But when they go more on soybeans and corn and peanuts, a lot of times my food plots have a lot of extra breathing room to, to grow and to get browse tolerant before they start shifting out of the ag fields and, and in more of the food plots. Yeah. And that's good. And then the other question I want to ask you is, you know, we talked about the disharrow as an example in your specific circumstance, you know, what size of a harrow are you running and what are the size of your trails that you're kind of putting in place? Like how wide are they? A lot of these trails, fire breaks are just one track or length wide. I mean, okay. so maybe, you know, maybe six feet. I mean, it's not, um, I mean, really, if you're really going to, if you're really cutting a fire break for fire purposes, you, ideally you would want it, you know, two, at least two tractor trying to width wide. So most of our fire breaks are actually ro like the size of a road. Okay. Um, yeah. 
but some of the some of the trails I reference, like if it's a trail going to in, into a stand, then I, that just might be that might be my tractor snaking through trees just to cut something in. It, you know, it might be very tight, yeah. But um, it's you know, it, it gets a job done. Yeah, no, no. I just I think people kind of wonder what you know what equipment you're using in those circumstances, and you know, I I recommend everybody have harrows, and you know, we use notch harrows in our areas just with the rocks, and it do, does really well, and. And I think that's a piece of equipment that everybody should own. I, I have a nice set for my tractor and um, I use them for some similar purposes like you're kind of identifying here. So I, I think it's a good piece of equipment to have. I just, not, not a lot of people talk about disking anymore. And I think that's a big part of the I, landscape changes. Yeah, I, absolutely. And then just one last piece about, about a hair. Sorry to interrupt, but you know, fire, a lot of people can't use fire because they have a, they have a lease and maybe a timber company owns it and they don't want it or whatever reason, we'll, we'll disc then. I mean, if you can't burn, go in there with a the tractor and try to maybe cut, if you have some sapling trees in the way, cut them down. But if you can start to disc, you're going to start to turn over uh, the seed bank. And, yeah, it might not be as pretty as burning. You might still have some, might still have some from some some pine straw mixed in, but you're, but you're disturbing the ground. And as you know, it's just – it comes down to ground disturbance and sunlight. No, I think that's good. And I think a lot of people miss that. So I think that's a good, good thing. This is totally unrelated. I don't even know why I'm bringing this up, but you know, when I was in North Carolina, the pine straw used for mulch around trees, I was like baffled by that, that you know, well, we, have, yeah. we have mulch, right? We, we use bark mulch here. And um, it was just, I was just, I, I said to my buddy, I said, this is just a different world. And, and you could see the flammability, et cetera. So, you know, you're bringing up some things that were kind of interesting to, to me personally. I, I didn't realize that was a whole, there was a whole market with the, uh, the straw. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, people, <laughs> yeah, I mean, people can generate income from that, not to get into it. The, the major drawback, if anyone's listening is that to, to get a pine straw lease with a company, or if you were going to do it, you just like what you're probably already thinking, you got to kill everything but the pine tree. So you're not having any kind of early successional growth and it's not, it's not really great for wildlife. Yeah, no, that's a good, that's a good point. So they're, they're dedicated for a purpose and that purpose is, is capitalism. Yeah. Understood. Uh, just, just a, just a nuance and a difference. And I'm, there's probably so many things if we talk about little in, in idiosyncrasies of the two differences is, is uh, there's a lot that adds up to, to how you manage in the strategy. Like you must laugh at times. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm actually cutting timber this evening. And you're probably like, what, what are you doing? You know? And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm cutting trees tonight. Like I'm, I'm actually putting in a bedding area tonight, tonight after this, uh, this phone call that I have with you. And uh, not, not when it's dark out, everybody. I'm cutting during the, 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 you know, the sunlight still, but you know, I mean, I think we all have our different little nuances and how we approach things. Yeah. And it's really interesting to hear kind of some of the examples of stuff that, you know, you work on specifically. So, you know, and, and somebody's like, well, 50 acres, but 50 acres, again, of your particular area is not a lot considering the size of your property. It's, it's a couple percent, two, 3%. And, um, you know, I'm sure they're, you know, somewhat spread out across the landscape. I think the other question for you, and I have a, a buddy that actually follows you pretty significantly, loves your information, and I, I do as well. He's wondering what your next target deer is because he's got a feeling you've got a you've got a deer on horizons you're going after. We didn't talk about this pre-show, but do you have anything specifically you're targeting this year? Because we we know how successful you were last year. I think people kind of wonder what's what's going on with you. Yeah, there were there were a couple that got away last year. There were two nice there was two nice bucks that were probably around four or five, and they were running together early season. And I had some people come in to hunt with me with our season opener uh, in August. And this guy was bow hunting, and so he watched both of them. I think like an hour after first light, just moseying, taking their sweet time, going back to bedding from the act field. And he watched them like at 75 yards. Um, and guess, guess the videos of them. And they were so those I think are still there. Um, I, I've really, 
I've got I've got cameras out and I've got more that I need to put back out. But I, I really kind of got slack on my camera game. Not not by the, not by any decision. I've just I've gotten to where I just um, if I'm up there, I'd rather be doing something uh-huh. uh, like work than actually. Because you know, I mean, if if anyone has more than five cameras, even if you're not checking every time, it's just a lot of work. Yeah. So, um, but you know, I also I also pull back a little bit the past couple of years of just obsessing over cameras and then bucks because I, I went through a couple of seasons where it just really, you know, it either happens or it doesn't with a particular buck, and if it doesn't. It, it, it can, at least for me, it can just, it's just mentally exhausting. Yeah. Um, because you think it's, you, you're really, and so I, I found myself really not having as much fun in, in the situation. So I started to kind of pull back from, you know, trying to target one buck and going heavy on the cameras, but then just putting myself in the positions of where, you know, if you're working the land or you hunt a, a general area long enough, you, you're going to know where they're going to be. Yeah. And I mean, you know where they're going to be relatively speaking. So, but I guess to answer that question, the long way rambling here is that I, I would I, again, like to get one early season, um, preferably in the morning. I like that challenge of trying to get a velvet buck in the morning as opposed to, trying to catch one in the evening on an ag field. And, and so going back to the food plots that we should have around 50 acres, but then that's also, I, I that's also based on our ag fields, which we have about 300 acres of ag. So, mm-hmm. yep. so, you know, that plays in, I mean, that's, those are essentially warm season food plots, but, um, there's a buck that has owned me for two years down the swamp. Um, and I'm hoping to catch up to him this year. Um, I just, I have got to get a game plan, John, as far as when I'm going to do it. Cause yeah. I, you know, yep. it, it's like, I kind of know, I know what he's going to be doing early season. And then it's like during the rut, he's, he, he hangs around the property, but during the rut, they're, they're just, so I feel like I need to get after him early. Um, because sometimes during our rut, with as many does and as many deer as we have, it it, it it's just it, it's it's really hard to get on a specific box. Yeah. Yep. Do you feel like your strategy at this point you're you're going to develop a strategy? I'm assuming over probably the next month or so to 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 try to attack this deer. I want to I want to talk about that on another podcast because I, I know how deliberate you are and I want to see, you know, based on your plan, how you're going to put the pieces together and whether you get the deer or not, it, it doesn't matter. It's the challenge that really counts here. Um, we, you've already been successful. You know, there's, there's, there's no question of needing to prove that again. It's just, you know, what would be the specifics in that equation? And what I like any of our people that, that are on this, you know, land managers, the hunting tactics people is recognizing that, you know, there's trial and error in all this, whether you use trail cameras or not, uh, you use cell cameras and that huge debate going on about that. Like I, I'm so far removed from, from that debate. And I know it's critical to those States where it's coming under question. I'm not saying that, but you know, where it's legal, you know, be legal about it. Um, but a lot of this stuff, like, we talked earlier, a lot of it's just observation. It's, you know what the deer are going to do based upon history and having those very consistent practices on your landscape. Yes, it varies a little bit, but it plays in your hand more times than not. It's this other piece where it's like, yeah, I got that. It's I'm going to go in, I'm going to make a move on something that may be a little bit off limits, hard to hunt deer, uh, maybe limited movement, a little more strategic. Like the pieces of that, to me are just as meaningful. Um, I don't think we necessarily need the volume of trail cameras or the volume of data to kind of make these strategic decisions. However, in that example, you may take those five cameras that you have and focus in on this particular deer's habits. 
uh, potentially just to get some data or intel to make some key decisions. So I'm interested to see how that game plays out with you specifically, because I, I find that very interesting. And then off record last year with Steve Shirk, who's been on this podcast a bunch, is you know, him and I were going back and forth on a couple deer that he was working on. And it was interested to see how he was trying to break down, you know, every little bit of it. And, you know, the cameras only tell you so much. And to rely on those as your primary means of information, you're really selling yourself short. But I mean, any bit of data is sometimes helpful, you know, when you have a deer that's that difficult. So I'm interested in hearing about maybe the the journey with, with that deer, whether it, you know, works out or not for you. I think it's it's quite interesting. Appreciate you sharing that, by the way. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, we're getting towards the end. We went way over our time. I only told you half an hour today. So um, <laughs> sorry, uh, we had ch- chatty today. Um, what, anything else you want to end with? I, I thought you added a lot in here and there's a lot to listen to, but people please go back and listen to some of the elements of this. I think it's very informational. Um, some very specific practices in here. Anything else you want to add uh, on to the end of this? Yeah, just just maybe one one last thing is Good. that you know as we um, as we're I mean we are moving in the summertime, uh, folks, and so like I was saying earlier, you know now is kind of getting you know crunch time at least in the south with with, with seasons not that far away. One other one other one other thing to consider to think about what you can do from anywhere. You can do it on vacation with your family at the beach. You can do it at your house on a rainy day. Is is the is to really dive into your deer herd and what you have been killing, what you haven't seen, you know, um, is there anything you want to, would like to change in your deer herd and then try to have a plan as far as what your goals are, uh, as far as bucks and does being shot. And, you know, a lot of everyone doesn't keep records or maybe they don't, maybe they bring their deer to a processor and they don't have that data, but you know, maybe you, Maybe you talk to your neighbors or, or just go back on like, you know, trail cameras, like what you said, it's an amazing tool. And if you don't have that kind of Intel, maybe you go out right now, you know, so you can start the process and, you know, where it's legal, maybe, you know, have a bait site, uh, minerals, minerals or a corn pile just to see how many deer you pull in and then rotate. Cause you might find that you got a ton of those. Or you might find you don't have many does in certain areas, but that can kind of help um, kind of gauge where you need to be. And then lastly, I would add is that do not be afraid to maybe push, go a little bit further in your doe harvest. And I'm talking about people that might be listening in, 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 in some density areas that are north of 50 deer per square mile, uh, you know, especially north of that. Don't be afraid to go a little bit further than maybe you had before deer or <laughs> to say that white tails are resilient is a gross understatement as far as how, I mean, they're, 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 they and coyotes are probably the ultimate survivors, just the longevity and what they have survived through. We're not going to overhunt deer in a lot of places, especially the Southeast. So, um, and where, where I strongly believe and where our, our records and, and data indicates is that when we started to kind of push the numbers as far as doe harvest, going back five, eight years, we saw a significant jump in, in, in bucks observed by our own two eyes on the stand and then bucks in the skinning shed killed and tagged. These same bucks were on trail cameras. And that's why another reason why I've kind of drifted off from going heavy me personally, just because we got caught up and there's this buck and that buck and this buck. And then you start to hunt them year round when realistically you might not re- really be getting a chance on a five-year-old buck in September. You might have to wait for other conditions, but we were doing that and we were losing sight of, of the doe harvest. And when you don't monitor and regulate that, you're not going to see the bucks. They're going to, they're going to be there. They're not going to leave, but you're not going to see them. So I, I, that, that's something where just, you know, because years ago I was just definitely afraid, John, that we, we, we were going to shoot too many does. Like, what if we just shoot too many and then our fawn recruitment goes down? Mm-hmm. It's not the case, especially when you know your neighborhood. I'm not saying you've got to take your all your neighbors, all your neighboring hunters, 
to dinner, you know, um, but just at least kind of have a general idea about how they hunt. Because I've got neighbors that don't shoot does. I mean, I've got one neighbor that has uh, access next to us, 800 acres, and he does not shoot does. They'll shoot a couple bucks a year, barely. And that's it. So, like, we're playing cleanup for them. Mm-hmm. That That's kind of what I'm talking about. So, and, you know, if everyone's hunting around you and killing those, that's that's awesome. So maybe, But if that's not the case, then maybe focus on that because for us, our my objective was I was tired of getting all these bucks on, on camera and then never seeing them and never, and never killing them. And we're growing them year after year, and they're, and they're growing and dying. And we're not killing them, so what can change? And that's what we've been concentrating hard on is just the dough, right? the dough numbers. Great, great advice and advice that I think we may have touched on before. And I think that's really something important to consider right now when you're looking at that recruitment number and the deer that you have immigrating onto your property and the, the deer that are surviving these kind of early periods after fawn drop, you know, your numbers will be at an all time high here coming up. And it's important to think about those numbers throughout this hunting season. So I think that's a great way to end this. Um, we're almost at hunting season, really, when you start to think about it, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of preparatory work. It's going to be here before you know it. And uh, I'm clearly not prepared. And uh, you know, you just scared me a little bit in, in my thinking. So I, I got to get myself moving. So hopefully everybody else is doing the same. Um, make sure you follow Mark, you know, Southeast Whitetail, um, great content. Uh, he obviously has a podcast as well. He's been on this multiple times. I appreciate his perspective on things. And it's great to talk to you again, Mark. It's been a bit. So I appreciate it. Absolutely, John. Thank you for having, having me on. It's always a treat. Yep. Sounds good. We'll talk soon. See you. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.